Thank you so much, musicians, and so good to sing with all of you. Let's pray now as we look to hear from God. Lord, those things we sang are the things that we do desire in our hearts. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In this service, Lord, we want to behold the glory of the Lord. We want these truths to press on us in their full reality for our joy, for our sanctification. But we also long with the prophets, Lord, to see your glory go across the earth. We want to see the earth filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And Lord, we know one day that will be the case, and yet we desire it now. Teach us, Lord, as we are your witnesses in the meantime to the world. Teach us from your word. Help me to be able to explain your word. In Jesus' name, amen. While preparing for the sermon today, I came across an article. An article about one Jewish man's experience, one Orthodox Jewish man's experience, of trying to keep the Sabbath in Brooklyn. In the article, the man describes a certain distressing challenge he encountered when he and his wife first moved into that city. The challenge was they could not lawfully bring their baby to synagogue. The article goes on to explain why. According to the religious tradition established by the ancient Jewish rabbis, it is a violation of God's law as expressed in the Torah, that's the five books of Moses, for a Jew to carry anything from one place to another on the Sabbath. Cannot carry anything from one domain to another. The rabbis said this represents the transport of goods which is work, and God forbid the Jews to do any work on the Sabbath. They are to keep the day holy and rest. What this means is that Jews cannot carry a water bottle, a copy of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, or even their own child when walking from their homes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And by the way, you can't push a stroller either because that too is considered work. This was very difficult for the Jewish man. Did God not want him and his wife to bring their baby to synagogue? Was the family or part of the family simply going to have to stay home until their child could walk? Can't carry him. Well, for a little while, his solution, the man's solution, was somewhat embarrassingly to have a Gentile push the stroller for him on the Sabbath as he went back and forth from synagogue. The father was very uncomfortable with this, however, so he was quite relieved when the rabbis, the local rabbis, established a new Erev, E-U-R-U-V, in the section of Brooklyn in which the man lived. What is an Erev, you ask? Well, the short answer is, an Erev is a workaround for the rule about not carrying things on the Sabbath. The rabbis say that you cannot take items from one domain to another on the Sabbath, one area to another. But you can carry items around your own home. I mean, that's your home domain. You're not transporting goods if you're just moving items around your home. So what if one extended the boundaries of one's home domain, the domestic space, extended far enough to even cover the place that you need to transport your item to? or even your child who cannot walk. Extend the home boundary. Well, this is what an Arab does. 
An Erev is an area of extended domestic domain, marked off by something tangible like translucent fishing line, through which Jews may lawfully carry objects back and forth on the Sabbath. And these Eruvin, that's the plural, they can be quite large. The article mentioned that there were plans for an Erev to eventually encompass all of Brooklyn. All of that is going to be considered domestic space. And you can carry items back and forth on the Sabbath. And much to the relief of the Jews, the devout Jews, who are otherwise very much restricted by the Sabbath rules. Now, it's worth asking in light of all that. Is this really what God had in mind when God commanded Israel to honor his Sabbath and to use it as a day of rest rather than work? Surely not. Rather, don't these rules and the workarounds the Jews must come up with just to keep the rules so they can still live life, don't they sound ridiculous? You cannot even carry your baby on the Sabbath? Why? Why have the Jews imposed such a burden on themselves that God never commanded and God never meant for them to bear? Well, the answer is the rabbinical commitment to fencing in God's law. Fencing in God's law. See, the ancient rabbis, like the rabbis today, they were committed to helping God's people avoid sin, breaking his law, violating his commands. And they wanted to do this at all costs, lest judgment fall upon the Jews and the Jews not enter into God's kingdom. The rabbis realized, though, that it's very easy to break God's law, even accidentally, without intending to. So they came up with extra rules, extra rules to make sure that Jews never even got close to disobedience. We're going to put these rules that keep you further out so that you'll never violate God's law. For example, to avoid accidental ceremonial uncleanness, the rabbis prescribed, in Jesus' time, extra ceremonial washings before meals. Before you eat, you have to wash your hands ceremonially. It's not in God's law, but it's what they prescribed. Another example, to avoid blaspheming God's special name, Yahweh, God specifically said, don't blaspheme my name, the rabbis prescribed never saying or even reading God's special name at all, which is something they still avoid today. And to avoid breaking the Sabbath, the rabbis came up with 39 categories of work and then prescribed that the Jews never do any of these categories of work on the Sabbath, even if the work is easy or commonplace. Well, you say, isn't that going to make things more difficult for the Jews? Better safe than sorry. That's the thinking. Yes, it's more hoops for us to jump through, but if we keep all the rules, if we keep all the extra rules, then everyone will be safe from sin. No one will violate God's law. And we Jews will be blessed. Of course, though, these extra rules which were originally intended to be a help to God's people in keeping the law. Not only did the rules grow to be very burdensome, afflicting to the Jewish people, but they came to acquire an authority equal to and sometimes even superior to what God said in his word. Violating the tradition of the rabbis was soon itself considered sin. And it could bring the harshest consequences, in some cases, 
even death. The thought became that those who truly love God and are going to be in his kingdom, they not only keep the laws expressed in the Tanakh, but they keep the law according to the tradition of the rabbis. That's what a true Jew does, what a true holy person does. He follows the tradition of the rabbis. But what did God think of these man-made religious traditions imposed upon his people? Well, when the Son of God, the eternal word, became flesh, entered the world, dwelt among us, he not only did not hold to the tradition of the rabbis, but he went out of his way to expose the ridiculousness of many of these holy traditions, as well as reveal the way these traditions functioned like a whitewashed covering for hearts that were far from God and full of uncleanness and sin. In our next passage in the Gospel of John, this is exactly what we're going to see Jesus do. Jesus will visit the pool of Bethesda and heal a man in a way that clearly breaks religious tradition, breaks the rabbi's rules. And in seeing how both the Jews and the healed man react to Jesus' provocative healing, we will discover the great danger of holding fast to man-made religious traditions while missing the Son of God himself. Please take your Bibles and open to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. It's verse 18 in the bulletin, but I think we'll just go to 16. The sermon title for today is Jesus' Provocative Healing at Bethesda. Jesus' Provocative Healing at Bethesda. John 5, 1 to 16, that's Pew Bible page 1,063, if you're using the Bibles that we have provided for you. 1,063. We're going to read the passage, but just as a heads up, I'm going to skip over part of verse 3 and verse 4, and you'll see why a little bit later. John 5, 1 to 16. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, or had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. 
For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, like I said last week, Jesus' honeymoon period with the people of Israel is clearly over. We aren't in the presentation phase, the presentation of the Son of God phase that we saw in John chapters 1 to 4. We've definitely moved into the opposition to the Son of God phase, which will, be, which will run from John 5 all the way to the end of John 12, where the stubborn refusal of the Jews to believe, even after witnessing all the miraculous signs of Jesus' ministry, will become quite apparent. Here, though, is Jesus' third sign, third miraculous sign in this gospel, a sign of healing. Though this sign is not so much concerned with the man who is healed, I mean, there is some concern for him, but the focus is not so much on the man who is healed, but on the Jews, who incredibly become enraged after the healing and even want Jesus dead. Why? Why this new, even murderous anger from the Jews toward Jesus? Well, it all has to do with man-made Jewish religious traditions about what was and what was not allowed on the Sabbath. But Jesus purposefully chose to heal on the Sabbath, and John purposefully chose to write about it so that we who are reading it now might learn a crucial lesson. What is that lesson? We can capture the main idea of the passage this way. John presents the sign of Jesus healing a sick man on the Sabbath so that you might be rescued from self-righteous religious tradition to believe in Jesus. It's really going to be one or the other. But John presents the sign of Jesus healing a sick man on the Sabbath so that you might be rescued from self-righteous religious tradition to believe instead in Jesus. We can divide our passage into three main parts, so I'll use three narrative headings as we make our way through the verses. The first heading covers verses 1 to 9, and it is, number one, Jesus heals a sick man on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a sick man on the Sabbath. Look at verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Notice that beginning phrase, after these things. After what things? Well, after the events that we heard about in chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee, and he healed the royal official's son of that man who, or, yeah, of the, the son of the man who met him in Cana. Heard about that miracle. Well, how long after those events are we now? We don't know. This is just some time afterwards. And what is Jesus doing now? He's going up to Jerusalem again to celebrate one of the three main Jewish feasts. All adult Jewish males are commanded to do that in the Torah, in the books of Moses, so Jesus is obediently fulfilling the law. Which feast is it? We don't know. could be the Passover, but the author doesn't tell us because it's not important for what comes afterwards. But what is important for us to know is something about a location that Jesus visits while in Jerusalem, which is what we see in verses 2 and the beginning part of verse 3. Look there. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Okay, here, John gives some background to his Jewish readers 
regarding a certain pool, the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Now, why weren't his audience of Jews, Hellenistic Jews, why weren't they familiar with this pool? Well, it's possible that they had never visited Jerusalem, so they never saw it, never knew about it. But probably, even more basically, it's because the pool no longer exists by the time John is writing. Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70, the pool surely along with it, but John likely writes this gospel around AD 90, towards the end of the first century. You may notice, though, that verse 2 is in the present tense. There is in Jerusalem a pool, not there was in Jerusalem a pool. Does this verb indicate that John actually writes before Jerusalem's destruction? Probably not. This is likely a use of what's called the historical present. You write about the past as if it's in the present in order to make it more vivid for the readers, the persons listening to your account. This is a common technique in the storytelling. John does it other places in his gospel. We do it all the time, too. It's probably what's happening here. So, pool doesn't exist at John's time, but it was there, and he wants his readers to know about it. But uh, what exactly is this pool? Well, just outside the northeast wall of Jerusalem in, in Jesus' day, on the other side of the Sheep Gate, there was this double pool called the Pool of Bethesda. That name is an it says Hebrew, but that's Hebrew-Aramaic. This is an Aramaic name meaning either house of outpouring or house of mercy. This pool has five porticos, we're told. That is five colonnades. What's a colonnade? Well, that's just a double row of columns with a roof. It doesn't have any walls. The colonnade, or the stoa, as it was called, was a common outdoor structure in the Greco-Roman world. This pool has a colonnade on each one of its sides and one going right down the middle. So what was one pool is divided into two half pools. That's why we have five porticos, or colonnades. This pool, by the way, has been uncovered by archaeologists and is visible in Jerusalem. Actually, in our study trip to Israel last year, my wife and I got to visit the Pool of Bethesda, the, the ruins of it. Now, what's the purpose of this particular pool? Well, as a freshwater reservoir, the pool could have fulfilled a number of functions. Well, one of them apparently was bathing, even ceremonial cleansing, ceremonial washing. And notice who, according to verse 3, is particularly attracted to this pool and laying in its various colonnades. All kinds of sick people, a multitude of sick. Why? Well, the pool of Bethesda had gained a reputation as having special healing properties. Furthermore, according to verse 7, this healing capability was popularly thought at the time to relate to an intermittent, every once in a while disturbance or stirring of the waters in the pool. Water gets agitated, that's somehow associated with the healing. Now the end of verse 3 and verse 4 provides a further explanation as to where the pool's healing power came from. But you may notice in your Bibles that these words are in brackets, or there's a footnote for these verses in your Bible. Let's read the end of verse 3 and verse 4 now. These sick were waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Why are these verses in brackets? Why is it the footnote? Well, that's because these verses are 
very likely not original to John's gospel. They're not actually part of the Bible as God originally wrote it. The reason why many Bible interpreters and translators make this conclusion about these words is because these words are not in the earliest and best manuscripts we have for the book of John. Half of verse 3 and verse 4, it only appears in later manuscripts of the, of the book of John, which means it was probably added later. Actually, what happened, most likely, is that a copyist, he's looking at the verses, he feels like there needs to be a further explanation as to why the sick people are gathered at the pool. And so he includes as a footnote, or maybe he puts it in the actual text, but he's trying to give an extra explanation as to why all these sick people are gathering here. And so he tells us there was this story, there was this idea that people believed that an angel invisibly stirred up the waters from time to time and imbued the waters with magical power that would heal whoever went into the pool first after the stirring of the water. Now, we don't know if that's true. Maybe the guy said that this is true and he added it into the Bible, but we don't know if that's true. If that is indeed what people thought... Well, then their belief was based on false hope. There wasn't an angel actually stirring the waters. This wasn't a miracle that God was providing for this people. Because this sounds way more like pagan superstition than any kind of miracle we see God do in the Bible. Are you kidding me? Healing by lottery for those who are quickest to get into the pool? That's, that's not the way God usually does things. That sounds much more like a pagan idea. So maybe that is what people thought, but it certainly wasn't based on truth. Certainly there was a stirring of the waters, that is mentioned in verse 7, which perhaps could be explained as an unknown spring, sometimes bubbling up from time to time to disturb the waters. And people thought, hey, you know, why is it bubbling all of a sudden? There must be something supernatural going on. And so there's this speculation about even angelic healing, perhaps. But whatever the exact reason for the pool's reputation, I mean, it is true that water does have a therapeutic quality many times, certain baths, certain pools, so I'm sure that's in there too, but whatever the exact reason for the pool's reputation, we learn in verse 3 that all kinds of sick people are lying around it in these porticos, hoping for a miracle, vainly hoping for a miracle. The text then introduces us to one of these sick people in verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Ouch. 38 years is a long time to be sick. It's actually more time than I've been alive. This man's been sick 38 years. Was he born with illness? Possibly. Though what we read in verse 14 suggests that the man became sick sometime after his birth. What was the sickness? Is he lame in his legs? Was he injured? Is he paralyzed? unable to use his legs? Again, possibly, though the passage doesn't use that word to describe the man. It doesn't call him lame. And instead, it repeatedly refers to him simply as someone who is sick. So probably, he has some disease that has so deeply afflicted him that he can hardly move. He's so sick. And this has been going on for 38 years. Probably got worse over time. And now he's just one of the many, hoping for a healing at this pool. Is he ever going to find it? Well, someone finds him first. Look at verse 6. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? How curious. Amid whatever else Jesus is doing at the Jerusalem feast, Jesus stops by this pool and finds this man out of all the others. The verse says Jesus saw him and knew how long the man had been suffering. How did Jesus know? I suppose Jesus could have asked around. But based on what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John, we know that Jesus has supernatural knowledge. He probably knew this without asking anybody. He knew all about this man. Jesus asks the man if he wants to get better which at first may sound like a silly question. <laughs> Jesus, he's been sick for so long, and now he's lying in one of the spaces around the pool of Bethesda. You think he doesn't want to get well? Well, let's remember, Jesus always has his reasons for asking the questions that he does in the Bible. Now, one of them here is no doubt to suggest to the man that Jesus can do something about the man's condition. Jesus can even make him well wants to ask the man if he's interested. Well, let's see how the man responds in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. An interesting response. The man gives this response, surely, both to explain why he hasn't gotten well yet and to suggest what Jesus could do to help him get well. Why hasn't the man gotten well? He can't get to the pool fast enough when the water's stirred up. No one is helping him, which means someone else always gets into the water before he does. Suggest that the water has been stirred, whatever that means, multiple times since the man has been there. Does this mean then that some people were actually healed? That those quicker persons who got into the water before him actually experienced healing? Not necessarily. I imagine some first ones who got into the water, they experienced healing as a temporary placebo effect because they had such expectations, such supernatural expectations about being healed at this pool. I mean, the same thing happens today. People who expect something to make them better, even though it doesn't do anything to make them better, they, they obtain that thing, whether it's a medicine or experience, and they suddenly feel better. But usually it only lasts for a little while. So maybe that's happening with some people in the pool. A guy gets in first and he's like, I'm cured! but it's just a temporary thing. Or maybe there's another explanation, and this would be more pitiful. Maybe when somebody, when the people notice the water's being stirred up, everybody jumps in, they're trying to be the first one in, but nobody can tell who's first, and everybody looks at themselves, and they're like, I'm not healed, I'm not healed, I'm not healed. It must have been somebody else. But the fact is, nobody was healed. Maybe that's the case. But the sick man suggested to Jesus that maybe if the sick man had help, helped to get into the water first, then the man could get well. Maybe you, stranger, maybe you could help me get into the water? Well, even having a stranger's help, compassionate stranger's help, that's no guarantee of healing, right? Maybe they still won't get into the water first. But this is pretty much the man's only hope. The future looks bleak for him, just as bleak as his past. Really, people and the pool have failed him. Nobody's helping him, hasn't been able to get well from the pool. 
He's got nothing else to look to. But then verses 8 and 9. First part of verse 9. But starting with verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. (laughs) Without further conversation, Jesus does for the man what other people and the pool could never do. Jesus instantly and fully heals the man so that the man starts walking. And notice how Jesus does the healing. As before, like we saw in John 4, Jesus doesn't touch the man, doesn't do any sort of dazzling display. He just speaks to the man. More specifically, he gives him three commands. Get up, or we could translate that, rise up. Pick up your pallet. That is, roll up the straw mat that you've been lying on and put it on your shoulder. And then walk. Start your way home. Now these three commands, they were previously impossible for the man to obey because of his sickness. But the one giving the commands now is no mere man. He is a man, but he is also the Son of God. Therefore, in the very pronouncement of these words, God put life and strength back into the man so that the man immediately does what Jesus commanded him to do. Immediately, verse 9 says, the man became well. And this is characteristic of Jesus' healings. It has long set him and his true apostles apart from the supposed faith healers in our day. Instantly well, fully well. And what is this? It's not a sign of the clear power, authority, and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just from this, we can say with confidence that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. And that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. He is the only one who can give it to you. He proves everything he said about himself and salvation in this one miracle. Therefore, the middle of verse 9 might seem like a fine place to end this story. But actually, the story is just getting started. Because we hear at the end of verse 9, now it was the Sabbath on that day. That seems like a random bit of information. Why is that included? Why mention the Sabbath now? Oh, this is not random. Because what Jesus just commanded the man to do as part of the man's healing, it goes directly against what the rabbis, what the Jewish authorities, what the Jewish people believed was lawful for the Sabbath. And this is on purpose. Jesus intends for this man's healing to provoke a response from the Jews, a response that will tellingly reveal where their hearts are with God. And we see this Jewish response in verses 10 to 13. So this is our second heading now. Number two. The Jews confront the healed man for working. The Jews confront the healed man for working. Look at verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Take a moment. Think about this. 
This man has just been healed from a debilitating 38-year sickness, suddenly to walk in full strength. The fact that he's now carrying his mat on his shoulder is a testimony to the powerful mercy of God that has been unleashed in his life. Yet the only thing the Jews can think to say to him in response is, Hey! Stop violating the Sabbath! I think they've missed something here. Don't you? Notice the phrase, the Jews, again. Undoubtedly, John has in mind here specifically the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders. But as is John's custom in this book, John doesn't designate that these are the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He just calls them the Jews. And this, again, is to show us that what the leaders do and say ultimately represents the response of the Jewish people as a whole to Jesus. They lead the people to take the same response toward Jesus that they do. So John calls them simply the Jews. Notice the verb tense of the phrase in this verse. Or notice the verb tense of the phrase, we're saying, in this verse. This is the imperfect tense, which means that the Jews keep saying what they say to this healed man. It's ongoing. Hey, you, stop carrying your pallet. It's the Sabbath. Hey, stop. What are you doing? That's not lawful, and you know it. They keep coming after him. Now, why wasn't it lawful for the man to carry his bed? There's nothing in the Torah that forbids this. It's not like this man was a straw mat salesman moving his inventory from one place to another or peddling his merchandise. Hey, you want a straw mat? Give me 10 shekels. No, he's just bringing his bed home. But the rabbis had already defined at this time that carrying objects from one place to another is work. doesn't matter what the object is. doesn't matter how far away the, the, the place is you're going. If it's from the home domain to somewhere else or from somewhere else to the home domain, hey, that's work, and that's forbidden on the Sabbath. Come on, we've got to make sure we don't violate the law. So follow the rules. Thus, according to the religious tradition, the accepted Jewish religious tradition, this man is breaking the Sabbath and dishonoring God. How sacrilegious. And this is not a judgment without consequences. These Jewish religious, religious leaders could bring serious penalties upon this man for breaking the Sabbath. So they're coming after him. How's he going to respond? Verse 11, we find out. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. Well, how does the man respond? Well, he points back to the person who healed him. The guy who made me well. The one who miraculously cured me. He told me to do this. Was I going to argue with him? Now, that is a true answer and one that should have got the accusing Jews thinking. But is this basically an effort to pass the buck? To avoid responsibility? To lay the blame on the one who healed him? Hey, he told me to do it. Don't blame me. I'm not a near religious Jew, but the guy who healed me, he told me. He told me to do this. Well, the Jews come back again in verse 12. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? Notice what the Jews don't include in their question. They don't say, who is the one who miraculously healed you? I don't care about that. 
only. Who's the one who told you to break the Sabbath? Who's the one who told you that you could pick up your mat, carry your straw bed, and break the Sabbath? Who did it? Give us the identity of this lawbreaker. Verse 13 then gives us a surprising bit of new information. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Now what do you know? The healed man isn't able to identify the one who healed him and who told him to work on the Sabbath because the man doesn't know. The end of the verse tells us why. Before the man could ask or notice after being healed, Jesus slipped away, slipped away into the crowd. No doubt there was much awe and excitement after this sudden healing. I'm sure some of those sick people around the guy who was being healed, they're like, that's the guy who was sick for 38 years. He's been here forever. Look at him. There's a bunch of excitement. Everybody crowds around him. They're asking him questions. There's a big commotion. Jesus doesn't stick around. Doesn't try to draw any excitement to himself. He just leaves, slips away. Verse 13's notable observation leads us to two other ones. First, since verse 13 is true, that means that Jesus healed this man quite apart from any faith this man had in Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He certainly didn't have faith that Jesus would miraculously heal him. He had no reason to expect that. So though faith is involved in many miracle accounts in the Bible, it is an error to say that God requires faith from people before they can be healed. Not always. Not with this man. Second observation Though Jesus clearly had the opportunity to heal other sick people at the pool, maybe even all the sick people at the pool, he didn't choose to do so. He just had mercy on one man. Just this man who didn't even know who Jesus was and didn't believe in Jesus. Why did God choose to do that? Why did Jesus choose to do that? We don't know except that it fit the Father's plan for Jesus. It's part of his messianic mission. And of course, this is another example of that truth we see throughout the scriptures when it comes to God. You will have mercy on whom you will have mercy, and you will have compassion on whom you will have compassion. Nobody can blame God for not healing them, but this man has received an incredible gift he never deserved. Yet the Pharisees are foiled The Jews cannot identify the Sabbath-breaking culprit responsible for all this mess. Or can't they? Let's look at the final heading, covering verses 14 to 16. This is number three. The Jews begin persecuting Jesus for his healing. The Jews begin persecuting Jesus for his healing. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him, that is the sick man, formerly sick man, in the temple, and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Well, here's a fascinating development. We see here that sometime later during the feast, the healed man goes into the temple complex, probably to offer worship and sacrifice based on his new healing, his new health, his, even his ceremonial cleansing. He can come back to worship now, and he does so. This man is probably still on cloud nine, 
based on the wonderful change of circumstances in his life. And then Jesus finds the man again, and he directs him to a more urgent matter than his physical well-being. Behold, you have become well, Jesus says. You can see for yourself that your healing is genuine. This is no placebo. This is no temporary thing. Your healing is genuine. You are well, and I'm the one who did it for you. But then Jesus says, do not sin anymore. Or we could also justly translate that as, stop sinning. That's an interesting command and exhortation. Because what does that imply? That the man has been sinning. That he is a sinner who must repent, who must turn from his sin, who must turn from all that dishonors God to seek the Lord. And Jesus adds a weighty reason for why the man must stop. Jesus says, so that nothing worse happens to you. What exactly is Jesus saying? Is he saying that this man's previous sickness was the result of sin? And so now a refusal to repent may result in an even greater affliction than the man has previously suffered. Even that 38-year debilitating illness, you might have some worse chastening brought into your life from God. Perhaps that's what Jesus is saying. Though not all sickness or trial is a result of sin, don't, don't just assume that if you got sick, you say, oh, I must have sinned. Don't think that, because we're clearly going to see that that is not the case when we get to John 9. Some trials, some sickness, it's just there so that you can glorify God. But, in other cases, trial, even sickness, is a result of sin. And we can see this in the Bible in Acts chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira, 1 Corinthians 11, with the Corinthians who were Violating the Lord's Supper in James chapter 5. The sick man who calls for the elders and confesses his sins so that he may be healed. In some cases, affliction is the result of sin. So how foolish would it be for this man, now that he's experienced physical healing, to just move on with his life without ever dealing with the sin that brought the affliction upon him? He had known an ongoing sin in his life. Positive change in circumstances is no excuse not to deal with that sin. Even if the man is healed temporarily, something worse will come. He needs to get right with God. And the same is true for us. You've been afflicted with something and all of a sudden your circumstances turn positive. And yet you're aware of ongoing sin in your life. Don't just say, oh, well, God obviously doesn't care now because things are going well. No, God is just being merciful to you. You need to repent before something worse happens to you. But whether the man had a particular sin for which God afflicted him, there is, of course, something worse, something far worse in store for every sinner, every unrepentant sinner, than a debilitating 38-year illness. And that is the forever conscious torment that awaits all unrepentant sinners in hell. God is a holy God, God is a good God, and he said the wages of sin is death, eternal death. My wrath must be satisfied for that which blasphemes me. And the only way it can be satisfied, satisfied is forever punishment. In mercy then, Jesus warns this man that the man must get his heart right with God and not merely offer sacrifices as thanks for a physical deliverance, 
If you don't deal with the bigger problem, then the full wave of God's judgment, which is building up, it's going to crash down upon you, and you will suffer for all of eternity. What good is a physical healing if a person's soul is never saved? And of course, that's the truth that applies to us too, isn't it? Don't stop with seeking God for physical deliverance. You need to get your soul right with him, and that only comes by repentance. You must turn from your sin. Well, how does the man respond? Does he heed Jesus' exhortation? Does he repent and believe in Jesus? Well, look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. That is a strange development, isn't it? We might have expected the man to confess his faith in Jesus and go home and tell his family about Jesus, like the royal official did whose son was healed. That was just the previous chapter. But this is not what we see. The man instead goes back to those angry Jewish leaders, the ones hunting for the Sabbath breaker, and he tells them that the one they're looking for is Jesus. Why on earth does the man do this? Is this a mark of new faith? Was he courageously going to give testimony to those hostile to Jesus, saying, Jesus proved his Messiahship by healing me. I want you to know it's Jesus. Significantly, verse 15 does say that the man told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. It doesn't say, it was Jesus who told me to break the Sabbath. It was Jesus who made me well. So is this a mark of new faith? Or is this a mark of naivete? Not picking up on the hostility of the Jewish leaders, the man goes back like a simpleton to finally answer the question they gave him before. Oh, oh, now I know the name of the one you're looking for. It's Jesus. Okay, have a nice day. Is that what the man's doing? She's just not quick on the uptake? Or is this really a mark of betrayal? Instead of showing gratitude to Jesus, and heeding Jesus' warning and call to repentance, the man tries to ingratiate himself with the Jewish leaders by tattling on Jesus. After all, such would secure the man's continued access to the synagogue and the temple. He wouldn't be put out of Jewish society or face any other kind of punishment. Which is the reason? Why does he tell the Jews? That's a difficult question to answer. But I believe the answer, one way or another, is negative. Really? I think the man is hedging his bets here. He's not explicitly betraying Jesus. He is grateful to Jesus. But he also doesn't want to run foul of the Jewish leaders either. doesn't want to be ostracized. So he gives up Jesus. One of the reasons I take this view is because when we get to John 9, I've already mentioned that chapter, we're going to see another man healed on the Sabbath, just like this man is, and that other man, just like this man, at first doesn't know the identity of who healed him. But this other man in John 9, the man born blind, he will defend Jesus before the Jews, even without knowing who Jesus is. He'll say, this man clearly is from God. And when the man does, the Jews 
will condemn him and put him out of the synagogue. He's excommunicated from Jewish society, proper Jewish society. And yet that's when Jesus finds the man again, reveals himself to him, and the man believes in Jesus. And he even falls down to worship him. All that is very different from what we see of the healed man here. So I believe there's a tragic note to this sign miracle of John 5. This healed man foolishly, ungratefully chooses this world, his present comfort, the man-made system of religious tradition that he was raised in rather than the God of life and the merciful Son of God who had mercy on him. What a foolish choice. But whatever the man's exact reasoning for telling the Jews about Jesus, we see the effect in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Notice the verb tense, the phrase, were persecuting. It's another imperfect, indicating continual past action. So in other words, because of this healed man's testimony about Jesus, the Jewish leaders have switched from mere observation and interrogation of Jesus to vicious persecution. The Jews are now pursuing, harassing Jesus for what Jesus says and does. And then notice the additional explanation in the second half of the verse. Why are they doing this? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. There's another imperfect tense in the verb phrase, was doing. Jesus was doing these on the Sabbath. What does that tell us? That tells us that the miracle reported here isn't the only time that Jesus works on the Sabbath. He keeps doing it. He keeps healing people on the Sabbath, which the Jewish leaders, leaders of course, regard as Jesus working and breaking the Sabbath rules. Therefore, the Jewish leaders cannot stand Jesus. He's breaking the holy rules of our religious tradition. He's teaching others to do so. We've got to stop this wicked man, this evildoer, this looser of the Sabbath. Of course, there is a profound disconnect, a great mental dissonance in this reaction to Jesus, isn't there? The Jews conclude that Jesus sins and breaks the Sabbath by doing signs of miraculous healing. Isn't there something obviously wrong with that conclusion? If breaking the Sabbath, as Jesus does, is so evil, then how does Jesus continue to heal by the power of God? Not just once, but time after time. There's a glaring contradiction now staring the Jews, specifically the Jewish leaders in the face. Jesus violates your religious tradition, but he heals by the power and approval of your God. Is then, is not then the proper conclusion that Jesus is right and you and your religious tradition are wrong? Even your whole system of self-righteous, externally focused works is wrong. 
and it will not save you. He needs to show you the way of salvation, the way of salvation that's in him. That's the proper conclusion. That's the rational conclusion. That's proper logic. And this is the realization that John wants his original audience of Hellenistic Jews and, of course, us today to see. We must be rescued from entrapping religious tradition, from man-made, self-righteous religious tradition, or else we will never be saved. We will never turn to Jesus, believe in Jesus to be saved. We will end up If we don't do this, if we're not rescued, we will end up just as ridiculous and as eternally condemned as these Jews who are condemning Jesus. Now, I've been talking a lot about the Jews and Jewish religious tradition, but is this message really relevant for us Christians today? Do we really have entrapping religious traditions or potentially entrapping religious traditions? Of course we do. And I'm not just talking about the traditions of Roman Catholicism or the traditions of Greek Orthodoxy. Yes, there's a lot of man-made traditions that entrap people away from Jesus Christ and away from his word. That's certainly true. But even we evangelicals, we Protestant evangelicals, we can start adding helpful rules, necessary rules, to what God said in his word And then trust in our rule-keeping. Trust in our own righteousness as we keep these external rules, these extra-righteous rules, so that we can even look down on those who do not keep them. Let me give you a few quick examples. Do you believe that Christians should pray before every meal? That is not a bad custom. But did you know that nothing in the Bible says you must do that? In fact, Jesus only did it once as part of his miracle of multiplying the loaves and fishes as he looked to heaven and blessed the food. From what I remember, from what I've studied, I don't see Jesus praying before he eats. I admit I'm guilty of judgment over this myself. Being with a Christian, they don't pray before they eat, and I'm like, what are they afraid of? Don't they want to stand up for Jesus? But this isn't required from the Bible. The Bible merely prescribes a thankful heart and a clean conscience to make food acceptable. Or do you believe that Christians should celebrate Christmas and that we must fight to keep Christ in Christmas for our culture? Well, the Bible does not command this. The Bible does not command Christians to celebrate any holidays. In fact, the early Christians notably did not celebrate Christmas. It's not until the end of the 4th century that we hear about Christians celebrating Christmas. As for the Puritans, late 1500s into the 1600s, did you know that they tried to outlaw Christmas because they considered the holiday too worldly? Now before any one of you says, Amen, and cancels Christmas, Recognize that the counter-argument is also true. The Bible does not forbid you from celebrating Christmas. You can engage in that holiday in such a way that you glorify God. But it's not required. 
do you believe that extra rules need to be enforced when it comes to dating? When it comes especially to Christian young people so that they will avoid fornication? Young ladies must wear or must not wear certain pieces of clothing. We need measuring sticks to enforce skirt length and necklines. And we need chaperones around our young brethren. Never leave them alone with someone of the opposite gender. Got to follow these rules or else they're going to sin. Well, the Bible does not give us specific commands like these to enforce. Rather, God only gives us certain wise principles for the pursuit of chaste living. The very principles that we are to instruct our younger brethren in. Now, as individual convictions or as family guidance, yes, we can set rules. We can have rules even for the issues I mentioned and similar issues. And don't mishear me. Religious traditions are not themselves automatically bad. Some are helpful, can be helpful. But we must beware. We must beware of enforcing extra-biblical convictions on others to burden them or to judge them. If you're a true Christian, you'll do this. I know it's not in the Bible, but if you love God, you'll do this. We must beware of taking that stance. And furthermore, we must beware of looking to our own rule-keeping for our righteousness. Because you know what all the rules I just mentioned as examples, what do all these rules fundamentally, fundamentally neglect? The heart. The most important part. You can pray before every meal. You can cancel Christmas. You can wear a burlap sack to make sure nobody lusts after you. But if your heart is not right with God, all that means nothing, and you will die in your sins. This is the great error of the Jews in Jesus' day. It's the trap they fell into, and it's the trap they're still stuck in. We must not fall into the same soul trap. Do not settle for man-made, self-righteous, religious tradition. Believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and you will have eternal life. He's the only one who can give it to you. Well, how does Jesus respond to this new hostility from the Jews? Does he back off? Does he avoid saying anything else that might upset these powerful Jewish religious leaders? Far from. Rather, as we'll start to see next time, Jesus uses the generated controversy of his Sabbath healings to put forward an even more provocative an even more infuriating claim before the self-righteous Jews. Namely, Jesus will declare that the reason why he does what he does on the Sabbath is because Jesus is God. Come back next time to hear all about that. Let's close in prayer. Lord,
How wicked is the human heart apart from your regeneration? How wicked is the flesh that still attaches to those even that you have made into new creations? For we will afflict ourselves with rule after rule after rule. We would rather do this than change our hearts. So it is with all the false religions of the world. So it is for us when we slip back into that legalistic mindset of trusting in our external works for our righteousness. God, these things mean nothing to you. They are an offense to you. They only make us look ridiculous. They only make the condemnation on us more obviously justified. So God, we turn from this. We turn from putting forth rules on others as if they were your rules. We turn from trusting in our own righteousness, trusting in all these strict things that we may impose on ourselves. Lord, we know it is not bad to have convictions, and to be holy, we must have self-discipline. Yet, that is not where our hope lies. We can never be good enough for you, no matter how many rules we impose on ourselves. The only one who can make us right, the only one who can save us is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we glory in you. You are our righteousness. We have nothing to plead before the gates of heaven except the blood of Jesus, the life and death of Jesus. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for your incredible mercy towards us. You are merciful to the man in this account, and you have shown us mercy as well. Lord, I pray that we would not trample on your mercy as this man appears to do. Even in a polite way, eschew your mercy. But let us embrace it. And if it means that we are ostracized, if it means that we are judged by others who are still caught in their self-righteousness, then so be it. Because we want you. We want the God who is life, joy, and peace in himself. There is no eternal life anywhere else except in you, Lord Jesus. So we will cling to you. We will glory in you. Help us, Lord God, to live out the salvation worthy, or live a life worthy of the salvation that we have received for your name as a testimony to the people of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.